Good afternoon. I'm Leon Davis, and you're listening to Altitude Adjustment, the podcast about people, politics, and professions. And today we've got uh, returning um, someone we had on before, and I'm really looking forward to talking to her today. Uh, and I'll introduce her in just a second. Uh, I do want to say that uh, we will be taking a break or on the podcast for the month of September as I am moving. And then once I get situated, then we'll be back podcasting so um, that there's that uh, I also want to mention that this this uh, program is intended for mature audiences only now, altitude adjustment may contain language images or other content that some may find objectionable so your discretion is advised welcome to altitude adjustment so I want to welcome back Angela Skirtu. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me. So the first time you you were joined us, it was part of a, a panel discussion, and we had several people on. And this time, we're going to feature you, and we're going to talk about your profession and um, how your life is going. So let me start it off with... Um, you have written a couple of books. Yes. <laughs> okay. So tell me about that first book, the uh, Helping Couples Overcome Infidelity. Sure. So, well, that book. So, I mean, I should say that I have worked with so many infidelity cases across the span of my business, I've been in business for eight and a half years doing couples therapy. And even beyond that, three years prior to that, I was doing counseling. And I'd have to say that more than 50% of my client population is couples dealing with infidelity. And I just saw it again and again, and basically created a treatment structure for how to help people work through that. Mm -hmm. And um, because I was seeing mistakes other therapists were making, for example, uh, mistakes, learning from my own mistakes, too, to be honest, it's one of the hardest issues to deal with. It really is. It is a second to abuse, physical abuse in a relationship. Most couples consider that to be just the number two. So number one is if you hit me, I'm not cool with that. Right. But number two is if you cheat on me. You know, definitely not cool. Most people consider it a deal breaker. But the reality is more couples than not actually still try to work on it and figure out how to come back together after the infidelity. And so I saw a lot of patterns around what people needed to get through it, ways people were building trust, ways that didn't work to build trust. In the book, I have actually written it for both clients and clinicians. So it's very simple read. But I include in every chapter a good story and a bad story. And the good story is usually one that, you know, you're like, yeah, ha, ha, it worked. They're perfect. And, you know, like those stories that you're, you're really proud of, right? But the bad stories are more of why this is such a tough issue to deal with and how I addressed it as a therapist, things I learned from that experience. And it's also meant to be kind of a... Hey, for you therapists who are working on this and struggling, all power to you. I struggle at times too. Here are some of my stories 
good luck with that. <laughs> and that's the whole book. <laughs> it's just strategies and encouragement. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, uh, I found your book on Amazon books. Where, where can someone find your book? Absolutely. On Amazon. They can find it on my website, www.therapistinstlouis.com. And you can also find it at Rootledge, which is the publisher. It is a professionally published book. It's not a self-published book. Um, so those are the places. The wrong button here. Okay. So anyway, uh, we're backing up, up and moving. I meant to go back to your books to talk about your second book, and that's Premarital Counseling, A Guide for Clinicians. So tell me a little bit about the, the thrust of this book. Well, so this is the first book I wrote, uh, and I was working on that one for several years, actually all the way back to grad school. When I was in graduate school, I noticed we were getting a lot of help about what to do when couples are in problems. But as I would put pieces together, I was thinking to myself, you know, we, we need more preventive work here that if, if certain couples had skills and strategies long before essentially all these huge problems occurred, we, they could prevent some, some of the therapy. <laughs> That's, you know, not that I want to take myself out of a job because obviously it's job security if people have problems <laughs> for me. <laughs> but I just thought to myself, I want to help people before it gets so bad because um, the, the most common thing that happens essentially is people start having problems in their relationship. And then seven years is the average time that passes before couples get help for their problems. And so then by the time they come to me, the majority of couples, it's like if you broke an arm and then you're like, I'm just going to see how this works out <laughs> and you just live for seven years, just like imagine that visual or whatever, something's broken. And so it's, I mean, it's it's usable to some degree, but it's kind of mangled and there might be some gangrene and there's just a lot of shit you got to right. do to by that point. And, and I found that like with couples, I was teaching them a lot of the same skills again, like um, how to communicate better, how to identify, here's what I actually need or would like to feel happy in this relationship sex stuff you know you guys know i'm a sex therapist as well as a marriage therapist so i i can't even begin to talk about how many people don't talk about sex in their relationships and so there's a lot of trial by fire there's a lot of sex in the dark and living marriages in the dark and i thought to myself you know we really don't get a handbook how to make this work so i wrote the handbook you know nothing big <laughs> i'm only being over dramatic and silly here but i did i wrote a handbook to try and help people figure some of that stuff out. Does it cover everything? No, it covers as many of the things as I felt could be helpful. And again, it's written for both clients and clinicians because I also wanted to give clinicians, other therapists, a tool for how to help people who are in that beginning stage and, and making those decisions, but just kind of want to know what do we do to prevent things from getting worse or what do we do to keep a strong sex life? And, and so I'm really grateful for that book as well because a lot of research and um, a lot of help has come out of that for the clients I work with. Do you have any questions, Leonard or, or um, Warren, before I move on? Uh, 
one question is how do you deal with couples or have you dealt with couples that say especially on the premarital counseling side well we just go to our pastor and get counseling or have you found you've had to mix what they were learning from their religious backgrounds or not how, how do you handle that on a case-by-case um, basis sure no no problem um i will say that people usually reach out to me when they don't want to go to a religious counselor um because i am i am very researched and science-based um i deeply respect people's cultural values and belief systems um, but usually people reach out to me because, well, because they want to talk about sex and they don't want to talk about sex with their pastor. And that's been a pretty clear, giving you a chance. That's been a pretty clear um, reasoning for why people reach out to me. Or sometimes they'll have started maybe a two or three series with their pastors, but then their pastors don't talk to them about sex. And so then they'll reach out to me. Um, it's not common for me to be doing it at the same time, uh, okay. simply because people who have that kind of religious persuasion can sometimes be turned off by my style. Not always, because I do, like I said, I'm very respectful of people's values, but I've noticed people who are very firm and strict and like, you know, this is my religious background, then they're going to go seek a religious counselor out and all power to them. I'm not trying to, I can't horn in on that space. <laughs> Um, but I definitely get people who want to talk to somebody about their sex life and just don't want their pastor knowing that, that stuff about them. Okay. <laughs> so, so what about the, the sex of the therapist? Do you find that maybe a man may be more comfortable with a man or the woman may be more comfortable with a woman? Uh, there is definitely that that can happen. I think that because I'm a pretty direct straight shooter, a lot of guys are really comfortable with me. And because I can talk directly about sex, men may initially feel uncomfortable about the idea of going to see just any female, but it has been very rare in my practice that a man hasn't ended up like I, once he's had a conversation with me, been like, yeah, I can't work with her. I think that in general, that question is true depending on the personality of the person that they're going to and the image that people portray. Like, I'm sure you guys kind of get a sense that I have a foot and mouth syndrome. <laughs> I just say stuff and I don't, I don't always think about how it comes across. Um, so I wasn't always gifted with tact in my life, which is funny because uh, it's great in therapy. Um, and it's part of probably why I end up being a therapist. I wanted to learn those skills, right? So, um, but I think a lot of men actually really like that in me because I'm not beating around the bush. I'm not pretending. I really just throw things right out there. Um, so it's funny, but it, it depends on if they're the kind of person who's conflict avoidant and who really doesn't like that direct approach. And that could be male or female when it comes to me. But to your point, there are plenty of people and guys and girls who are like, no, I need to talk to a guy versus I need to talk to a girl. And I could see that specifically when people are talking about like erectile dysfunction or premature ejaculation. Maybe they're like, oh, I really only want to talk to a guy. But I, I mean, I get pretty down and direct with guys about that. Um, 
So I think it just depends on the attitude of the therapist too. Well, well, speaking of that, how do you approach that when a guy says, well, you know, I just can't get it up? Well, there, there's a big assessment process to it, but I talk to him about his masturbation habits. I talk to him about whether it's different, whether he's with his partner or not. I ask him very specific questions about if he's getting erections when he's sleeping, because those are things like basically those assessments are me trying to figure out if that's a physiological issue or a psychological issue or both. And it can be any of those three, by the way. Um, for example, if a guy's still having erections at nighttime, like you wake up and you get a, an erection, um, then it's likely not fully physiological because physiologically your body's blood, blood flows through your system. So if you're still waking up with erections somewhere in the middle of the night, then that's a good uh, indicator that it may be more psychological or relational, for example, because psychological means like, oh, I'm having performance anxiety, but relational can mean can mean maybe I had a few mistakes or mishaps and then we got into big fights and now there's pressure and stress around it. So there's actually a lot of complexity around that topic. And again, I just go straight for it and I tell people, hey, I know I'm a stranger. Uh, if you're uncomfortable with any of this, please talk to me or like tell me, hey, I don't feel comfortable. But usually by the time people are coming to me, they know my background. Like I have my own podcast. I have my own YouTube channel. I put everything out there on my website. So people know up front, they're like, okay, I can talk to her about this. Um, and so honestly, I really haven't, it's usually people who have trouble talking to me are people who didn't necessarily come in initially about sex. Maybe they were coming in for relational issues. And then I always drop in something about sex just to give them the permission to talk. And then that's when they might be like, oh, you know, and they kind of whisper. And I'm like, you know, I'm a sex therapist. You can say whatever in here. I really won't care. <laughs> like, I love it when people whisper vagina. That's vagina, by the way. And I'm like, it's okay to say it out loud. Nothing's going to explode. <laughs> Except my heart. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and, that, and that to me is interesting is that uh, there's still quite a bit of uh, apprehension around the topic of sex in our society. Do you do you find that, you know, that whispering or that um, reticence to, you know, open up about that topic hinders people's ability to get the most out of their sessions with you? Um, oh, that's not where I expected that question to go. So I think it can, but I am pretty... So I'm trained to work with every conflict style. So those people who are a little nervous, I'm just more gentle with them and more always working on my tact, <laughs> but always a work in progress for me. Um, but yeah, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm pretty capable of drawing people out of their shell. Um, I just have a different strategy for that quiet, scared person than with the person who just spells it right out. The question I thought you were going to ask is, do you think that's hindering people's ability to have a good sex life? And I was going to go, absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you have to be able to talk about sex outside of sex, like outside of having sex, to have a good sex life. Because then, you know, in the moment, it's too, there's a lot of pressure around it. There's just miss, things you miss out on. And that doesn't mean you have to do like a whole recap after you have sex with a partner, but it just means it needs to be a casual enough conversation on a Friday night or a Tuesday where you're like, you know, honey, 
we haven't been playing with sex toys in a while and it would be really fun if we included that or a different conversation. You know, the angle of your penis is kind of hurting in that particular position, but when we do this other position, it really feels good. So I'd like it if, if we do that position, we do it a little slower, but then in, in um, like in other positions, we could definitely go a little more hardcore. That's what people should be able to say casually to each other. <laughs> On a Tuesday. <laughs> or, or a Wednesday if they've got the day off. I'm just saying, because I like even I realized when I said Friday, that means it's date night and there's too right. many connotations around it. So, no, it needs to be Tuesday after dinner. Definitely do it away from the kids because it's none of their business. But that casual sense of I can just bring something up. It's not this big to do or, oh, no, we're talking about sex. It's just, oh, OK, no, that's a good plan. Let's try that next time. And then when you're in it, you can just enjoy yourself. Like that's why it needs to be outside of sex at times instead of just when you're having sex. Because like, think of like the vulnerability people are feeling while they're having sex. So say you are kind of thrusting hard and have visuals that people won't see when they listen to the podcast, right? I'm so good. like you're having fun, you're just enjoying yourself. And sometimes a person's getting lost in that. And so it's nice to be able to say on a Tuesday, separate from that, hey, just go a little lighter. But at the same time, I still want people to be able to talk in the moment about that too. Like, hey, maybe a little lighter. It's just a little tender today. You know, like there should also be a freedom in that time too. But I, you know, like if you guys do a little planning outside, then you can also just, there's the fun of getting lost in sex that can happen as couples are creating boundaries or discussions around this is where it feels good. This is when it's too much for me, et cetera. Did you have a question, Warren? Yeah, more questions. I feel like you guys threw you guys off there. <laughs> I have a few more questions today for some reason. Very good. Um, <laughs> like, I need to talk about this thrusting situation. <laughs> what about time of day for sex? Does that come up much? You know, all right, here's what bugs me about time of day. So most people are in the routine or rut of only having sex on certain days at certain times and certain locations. And I'm putting all of those things out there very much on purpose. Um, most people are trying to do it sometime in the weekend, which is fine. I'm not anti-weekend sex. Um, they're usually doing it after they put the kids to bed, which makes sense. Um, or it's like a Sunday afternoon sort of deal, like during nap time. And so there's nothing wrong with those times, but I would say that as people age, as uh, people's bodies change, it's better if it's a little earlier. What I, I don't know if you've heard the song Afternoon Delight, but I, I personally think the afternoon is one of the best times for couples to have sex. And it's because if you just think about it, okay, in the morning, People are just kind of groggy and waking up. That's still good time for morning sex because that's, of course, when people are getting their morning woods. So I get that. Um, but like if you think of how people physiologically feel, like sometimes some people just don't feel as, I don't know, prettier. Like, you know, part of sex is your confidence in yourself, too. So for women, if they feel kind of gross or icky, they might not enjoy it as much or be able to get lost in it as much. And that doesn't mean, you, like I said, please don't take this as like, you can only have sex in the afternoon because really I think you should be able to have sex anytime, any day, anyway. Um, but I've been encouraging a lot more people to experience afternoon time because like a lot of couples just keep waiting till the end of the night. And the end of the night is when you're more tired. What if you, I don't know if you guys know this, but after a big meal, all your blood actually rushes to your belly. So it's harder to get an erection during that time, right after a meal. 
Um, and then late, if you're, if you have to work the next day, you're exhausted. And so I yeah. even advocate for couples to have sex before their dates instead of after their dates. Cause if they go out and drink, think about how that impacts erections, you know, like I'm sure everybody's had a little whiskey drink at some point, but you never admit it. <laughs> what were you saying? Men have higher testosterone levels in the AM, if I'm not mistaken. They do. They do, which is why I'm not anti-morning sex. I'm just telling you most of my couples, when I offer the afternoon idea, they're like, that'd be nice if, well, if they had childcare <laughs> in the right. free time. But 100% men, men enjoy morning sex more. Females tend to enjoy evening sex more. So it's also a compromise thinking for both people. Right. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you had something. I thought you had something. That's why I was waiting. I was going to give Warren an opportunity to speak, because uh, I've got like so. So one of the things, and and I know we're talking about actual um, sex therapy stuff, but um, you have mentioned, uh, you know, people coming to you, and uh, you are a part of the psychological profession, correct? Well, so, uh, yes, I mean, I'm in the mental health field. I have a marriage and family therapy degree. So I don't have a, I have a psychology bachelor's and a marriage and family therapy master's, just to make that clear, because it depends on where you got your degree, how you can define yourself. So, so why would um, someone pick a, a therapist over a psychologist? So a psychologist has been trained to really work with one person, with one di whatever their diagnosis is. So a psychologist is going to do a full assessment to figure out, do you have ADHD? Do you have anxiety? Do you have depression? You know, I'll think of all the diagnoses people have that are more mental health related. And so a psychologist is great for getting that assessment, doing it fully. Um, and they're great for working with one person on that issue. Usually psychologists have not been trained to work with what, more than one person in the room. As a marriage and family therapist, I specifically went into that field because I wanted to work with more than one person in the room and I wanted to work with couples specifically. I still do work with individuals, don't get me wrong, um, but I really wanted to learn how do you handle couples who are fighting with each other? How do you handle couples who can't communicate or don't understand each other? How do you handle crossing, miscrossing wires, essentially, you know, where one person says this, but this is what the other person hears. So, and psychologists aren't necessarily trained in all those interpersonal dynamics. They're trained in one person helping them figure out their mental health diagnosis and what to do to treat themselves, which is very valuable. So, I mean, we all offer really important things, um, but my training is very much about those dynamics between couples, helping couples love each other, understand each other better, respect each other more, identifying when something is abusive, like emotional abuse, for example, is a very, very hard thing for people to like put their finger on. And anybody can be emotionally abusive. So I don't, I, I, I don't like labels like that because I think anybody can be emotionally abusive. Like when you call somebody a name in anger, that's a form of abuse. And so at any point people can do that. So um, 
defining okay so so the question is about some behavior is acceptable but at some point any behavior can become a problem how do you identify when a behavior becomes a problem so let's say um, they like to role play and um, he likes to spank her. Um, that can become a problem. How do you identify when it's it's becomes a problem? Well, spanking is a problem when it's coercive or it's not consensual between both parties. So somebody can start off liking a spanking and... Um, and they might enjoy it for a time, but then there can come a point where if somebody's like, you know what, that was a fun thing to do for a time, but it's just not me right now. It's just not what I'm interested in at this point. Then um, that's when spanking suddenly becomes a problem. And it's it's in their inability to talk to each other or share, hey, this isn't something I want anymore or like anymore. And um, just to add to that, um, anytime anything sexually is included in, um, you know, in your choices that don't like represent both people, then it's a problem. Yeah. Okay. Uh, put the paddle away, Leon. Well, I mean, so, <clears throat> so my, 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 my thought is, is that, is that, um, because we, you know, so, on a given day, um, I, I think I'm, I'm concerned that couples don't talk about sex before they start trying to have sex. And so their anticipation of or their acceptance of, we have a tendency as human beings to be, to allow certain things to occur until they create a real problem for us. So whereas uh, the guy says, you know, I, he wants he wants to spank her, and he uh, starts spanking her, and he doesn't. He may not say it to her, "I want to spank you" or whatever the case may be. So he hits her uh, on the butt, and she does not immediately correct him. She does not stop him from doing what he's doing. So he takes that as uh, um, acceptance, and then he progresses on that on that path and then the only time she may say something is when she's reached a point of where it has she suffered in silence for so long that now she's changing and so i'm i'm just experiment or trying to understand you know how, how do we get to 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 address those before they become problems and and not you know am i making sense yeah, no, you're making sense. Um, one of the things that's more common that's coming to mind is actually pain during intercourse, which is a common issue that females uh, really do exactly what you're describing. So what it, it just made me want to shift path for a moment. So um, first of all, women have kind of been socialized to just go along with things, with sex. And I'm not encouraging of that, but I do think that because women have been taught to just accept certain things like just do it do it for him it's not a big deal that sometimes women will engage in many different sexual acts 
whether it is a paddle or honestly just sex that is like painful, physically painful to the female. And as a result, she will take on a type of trauma, a type of trauma in those sexual experiences, because that's what she feels she's supposed to do um, to be a good partner or to be doing her part. And what I commonly see is females who start having painful intercourse and instead of getting help the way they need to, um, going and um, like continuing to do that to the point that they actually traumatize their vagina and then sex becomes something they start to avoid because it's painful. Like think of if you've been like, I don't know, like all of us actually have the natural avoidance response. When you stick your hand out or near a burner, you, you already have this natural recoil response. Cause you're like, you know, that that burns you and hurts you. And so um, that's what happens with women who have painful sex. And so it's not something it's not even something that they've consented to, you know, like you don't consent to have painful intercourse. It just starts happening in your body. Sometimes it happens after a woman is pregnant and has an episiotomy, for example, and the scar tissue just doesn't heal loosely enough. Other times women have it to start, like even as they start having sex. Um, But so to your point, one of the things we need people to be able to do is one normalize that it's okay for you to not be okay with something or that it's natural at times for women to experience pain, but for them to be able to talk to their partners about that too, uh, early on so that, well, so that people feel free to do so. But because sex is such a taboo topic, people really do struggle to bring things like that up with their partners. So as soon as something feels uncomfortable, instead of just saying, Hey, babe, I just don't like that. Or that feels uncomfortable, or I'm actually starting to have pain and I don't know what to do about this. They just hold on to it until it becomes a real real serious issue yeah so so as um um you know that that has um been an issue or been a concern and and because i I tend to read a lot you know i um, hear about those kinds of things and one of the other things that um, along that same line is uh, teaching a partner what you like and don't like so um, if you care about your partner, my guess is you're going to try to find ways to please them. And um, hearing from your partner what they do like, uh, I think is a exceptional way to learn something rather than to encounter doing it wrong for so long. And then once the partner no longer wants to accept it that way, then to learn you've been doing it wrong. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I can't help but notice. <laughs> that's that's quite all right. Uh, we'll we'll have that discussion. Right. Yeah. He he has he has uh, he has he has some medical issues that might cause that. So um, we'll deal with that later. So yes, I want people to be able to talk and figure out what they need to do um, to discuss more. So <laughs> I'm just distracted by it. I'm sorry. That's quite all right. I understand. <laughs> Leon, what do you have to ask about? <laughs> so, well, I mean, do you feel comfortable that you can go on? Because cause I don't want you to be, you know, so. No, it's fine. <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, I had a, another question. If you sure, go ahead. On or I... No, go ahead. Okay. I was just curious. Does anybody track uh, things like divorce rate and couples that seek therapy? Whether how effective it may be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Those things are tracked. Um, and not by every like specific therapist, by the way. So mm -hmm. I can't, I can't speak. To, I'd actually have to look up that track track record myself. Um, yeah, but I will say I, yeah, no, like, I mean, we have to look it up, but like, I will say I can tell the difference between when something's going to work and when something's not going to work. And uh, I'll, it has to do with the time frame in which somebody comes in to seek help. Okay. So when people come around, like if they come in early, so, you know, I told you that most people kind of wait seven years after a problem right. starts before they actually get help. Right. Mm -hmm. But what does happen is for people who don't do that, who come in earlier when they first see problems starting to occur, or even a year or two after problems occur, those are the people who tend to have more impact in in therapy and what it comes down to to be fair is it's people who still love each other and people who haven't developed so many resentments that they just are already done so the most ineffective therapy is divorce therapy essentially where people are at the end and they really one of them's already pretty much done and they're just like trying to convince the other one to be done but they're coming into therapy just to do that last sort of thing um and that really, to me, it's unfortunate because when I see that happen, I'll still help people. It's my job, but it, it's the worst form of therapy. And it's the most common time that people actually come in to seek help. Um, and, you know, there's actually, if you look up, there's this thing called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So you look for four things in a couple, criticism, defensiveness. These are the four horsemen. Um, stonewalling and contempt. And the one that's the most, the highest predictor for divorce is contempt, which is basically resentment. That's just like festered itself into the darkness of like, I just hate you, or I don't even give a shit about you, you know, like at that point. And when you see it in people, it looks like almost like apathy. Like, I don't care. I don't even care. You know what I mean? Like, that's really what it looks like. And so I'll tell you, bar none when people come in in that space or one person is in that space i'm helping but i'm like in the back of my head you know right, so what happens I, yeah i mean you you kind of do but there are not those for the first three that i mentioned so criticism criticizing each other and defensiveness is common so it doesn't necessarily predict divorce and stonewalling is just when people shut down and they can't take information in um those are just harmful conflict things but they're not necessarily unsolvable or unfixable uh right. they're just warning signs that you need to get some help okay yeah. so so it um what would you consider or what does the i guess i don't want to just make it too specific but what would be considered um, successful intervention in a couple's relationships. So um, not every couple is, is meant to be together. There's just maybe too many factors that make it 
difficult for them to continue to be together. Um, and and I, I, I couldn't imagine that that would be considered failure. That, that actually, in a, in a way, is a good thing that they've at least come to recognize that, that they can't move forward. So, so what, you know, what are some of the markers of success in couples' relationships? I love that you actually approached it like that because to me, success is change and movement towards growth. And that's very broad and vague on purpose because not every relationship should stay together. They really shouldn't. There are, I mean, you guys have seen them. There are these people. So I'm not pointing out anybody or naming right. names. Mm-hmm. But you, you all have a couple somewhere in your life where you're like, so they stayed together, but you're like, should they have? <laughs> is that a good idea? And so in my book, I, the way I see it is there's two things I'm working towards. One is mental health, the health of a person and, and both of those people. And one is the health of a marriage. And mental health can 100% trump marriage. 100% can. Um, and so one of the things that my goals are in terms of intervention and what successful intervention looks like simply is how do we help people move towards health and whatever health looks like for them? And so in those relationships I was talking about where things are abusive or um, like really harmful or just toxic, you know, some people it's just their, whatever it is about their personality styles, they do not mesh well. They are just going to hurt each other and they don't mean to. Like the, the reality is I also believe that most people do not intentionally want to hurt each other. Most people love each other, care about each other, wish they could make it better. But there are some personality types that probably shouldn't be together. Certain conflict styles that don't do as well together. And just certain people that hurt have hurt each other so much that it's very hard to come back from that. And so um, a a successful intervention for me, if I were to, it's funny, but I kind of see myself as a chess player with couples. And I'm just trying to get them to move on the board, move pieces. And so as long as they're moving in some way, shape, or form, they are progressing, whether that's me moving them towards each other or if it's them moving on with their lives. And so that successful intervention to me is changing for the better in whatever way that means. And so I have moved people, but again, so it's not my choice. This is the part that's super important for any therapy. It's not my choice to tell you whether you should stay together or leave. That is not my place because you live with the consequences of those actions, not me. And so I help people figure out what life would look like if they do divorce. I help people figure out what the path looks like if they're going to work on each other, how they're going to work on each other. I help people try to understand each other better. Um, But ultimately, it is their choice to decide to stay or leave. And successful intervention is just getting them to change the unhappiness. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Sure. So, um, one of the the things that you, um, talked about kind of sparked in me, um, the idea about arranged marriages. Have you had to deal with clients of, um, clients of yours that have been in arranged marriages? Yeah, absolutely. How how does how does arranged marriage differ from um, marriage of choice? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, 
arranged marriages look like the people who start those marriages know that the spark might not be there right away, that they have to work at it long-term to create that. And so in some ways, arranged marriages come with a lot of pre-understood expectations that marriages of choice don't. And um, there is not necessarily a higher success rate between marriages of choice versus marriages that are pre-arranged um, because the pre-arranged marriages go in knowing knowing that they have to do work and knowing they have to find ways to connect. And in some ways, so one of the highest predictors for, um, so not all of them, but one of the high predictors for success rates in marriages is if the family is, around them is accepting of their choice. And what that means then is in these arranged marriages, guess who's picking the partner, the family, the outside right. family, it's the families bringing them together. So in some ways, <laughs> I mean, I'm not a proponent one or the other. I deeply respect whatever cultural value system people come from, but in some ways they're, they're already coming with a better sense of like the families know their kid. They, they, they want them to be happy. They aren't trying to put them in this like unhappy forever situation. A lot of times they are really thoughtful and conscious of um, what is a good fit for our family structure and system. And so I've seen, healthy and unhealthy marriages in the arranged marriage situation. And I've seen obviously healthy and unhealthy marriages in the choice situation. And to go back in history, by the way, uh, marriages of choice or marriage out of love is a new thing. It is not old. Um, long ago, um, and actually not that long, I, in my premarital book, in the first chapter, I do a little history of marriage and I mean, just two or 300 years back, people looked at love marriages as a stupid idea. <laughs> Why would you do that? Love comes and goes quick. It's this like, but it was also a time, by the way, where it wasn't uncommon for people to have secret lovers and that that wasn't necessarily this evil travesty. Like people understood that love comes and goes. So for you to have a lover or to see a prostitute, you know, again, nothing to harm the basic structure of the marriage. But it wasn't uncommon to have lovers. It, it really wasn't. It was, it was just not cool to look bad <laughs> in front of society, um, which is why when certain like historic kings would bring out their mistresses in main areas, that's, it wasn't that he had the mistress. It's that he made her a public figure. <laughs> and you see that in Europe today, by the way, like in European cultures. I don't know if you've seen that in some of the like, it's actually really common, even currently in Europe, for people to have lovers, mistresses, not all areas of Europe, of course, but, you know, you've heard of like France, people who kind of they just have their person on the side. And so it's not having the person on the side, that's the issue. It's making them a public figure and um, bringing shame on the family. <laughs> so it's interesting. Yeah, I, I think that that is. Uh, um, so... so that was that has always been something that has kind of uh interested me in the conversation we don't talk about that here we have um because of i guess uh, our difficulty with talking about sex um and and because of i think we're still defining what marriage is uh in in american society i think we're still defining that uh, some people think it's settled, but I, I think we're still defining that. And we're still trying to understand what is success. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so, well, to add to that, I mean, people are putting a lot of pressure on marriage, mm-hmm. like a lot of pressure for what it means to be a successful marriage. And initially, a successful marriage was you were raising your family and you were financially doing okay. That was success in marriage long ago. Or you raised your status somehow. Like that was success back then. And now we've added to the equation, well, no, now you need to be in love. Two, no, you have to have a good sex life. No, three, you actually have to be best friends. Four, you actually have to be on the same page about, um, you know, like all of your future plans, values, careers. Oh, oh, and you have like you, well, you know, the most common is the egalitarian. We both have to be putting in 100%. And so we've, we've added so many expectations to marriage that what we've also done is created higher a higher chance for failure because there's a lot of ways to be unhappy now that weren't present. Hmm. So one interesting. Of the, did you have a question more? Did you have something? No, no, that's interesting. Uh, all those added pressures. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah. Have before. You're married folk. You, you're a married man. You, you know, all of those pressures, <laughs> even, even friends. So, so my daughter recently married. Um, and one of the very first things I said to her after I said congratulations was, when am I going to get some grandbabies? So that's an expectation, or at least that's uh, offering some kind of pressure. That's some kind of pressure. Does it, is anybody familiar with Nawalny? Huh? Anybody so, uh, familiar with Nawalny? I think that was in the, the paper today. My, my apologies. I got interrupted. I can't make that out, but no. I, yeah, I it's someone um, mentioned Nawalny, um, and I, I think that was uh, in the news today. Uh, um, if you could explain your comment a little better, that would help. So anyway, I, I put uh, additional pressure on my daughter. Um, she could tell me to go fuck off, uh, or she, as her, you know, deal with I'm her father, and now she has this additional, you know, it, her life, her marriage is is or is not going to be measured on do I have grandkids or not. So I understand, you know, all of the pressures that we are putting on um, marriages. But one of the well, th- absolutely. I mean, it, what's interesting is that. Like I interviewed my grandparents for the premarital counseling book and they're like the one couple in my life that has been married for 60 plus years. So I was really curious to find out what, what does it take to be this successful marriage? Cause you look at them, they're still really sweet on each other. They're not one of those couples I was talking about earlier. That's kind of like, Ooh, they needed to end that. They're one of those ones that people kind of like revere is, Oh my God, they did it. They made it. <laughs> And I remember asking my grandparents, like uh, my grandma. So I asked her, I was like, so what's it take to be happy in marriage? And she said, Angela, that's a stupid question. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, what? He's like, we didn't get married to be happy. Like we got married to raise a family and take care of our kids and to do the best that we could. If you were happy, you considered yourself lucky, but you didn't get married to be happy. And it was just, it was so eye-opening to me because I, well, I personally got married for some sort of happiness fulfillment and it it was like, wow, that's just, 
that wasn't that far back in generations. <laughs> like she was alive at the time when I interviewed her, so she couldn't have been that old. She's passed away now. But the point is, like, I think she was in her 80s at the time. So that's just early 1900s of, <laughs> yeah. right. I guess, yeah. I'm like, no, it's just not why you get married. So, I mean, thinking about that, I mean, they were lucky, though, that they did have that romance. My grandpa used to always say, oh, I, I was just, I just burned for her. You know, and it was mm -hmm. sweet. It was sure. sweet, cute, but like, that's not why they got married. <laughs> so right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I've got one other question that I definitely want to get in before we, um, before we end the show. We've got about 10 minutes left. Uh, do you have a question, Warren? I'm going to let you have uh, your question first. No, I, I, I'm good. I just have to piggyback on what she said, you know, because nowadays when folk ain't happy, uh, you got a problem. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Absolutely. The thought was that that marriage brings happiness, that you meld two people together, that somehow they're going to, you know, create this happy union. And, right. you know, when we've got uh, a 60, 55 percent divorce rate, um, we have to reassess and reevaluate what that what what we mean by happiness. Um, yeah. So so one of the questions that I, I definitely wanted to get to, I listened to um, in order to bring you on to have you join us. I listened to your podcast and the podcast that I listened to was an extremely interesting podcast. And, and I listened to a couple of other podcasts since then. But the, the topic of BDSM came up. Oh. <laughs> and I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not gonna say what BDSM is in case some young person just happens to run across that tiny segment. So oh, you gave the warning, man. Go ahead. I, well, no, I, I think I think warning. adults adults know what that is. So I'm just gonna leave it at that. I don't know what is it. <laughs> so, um, so you were, and and it, this surprised me. This opened my eyes that that you were talking about uh, this is a good thing. Well, I mean, I think it can be a good thing as long as it's a consensual thing between sure. all parties. Always consent is a super high ethical value of mine. But actually, I've learned a lot by studying couples who explore BDSM and polyamory, um, which is open relationships to some degree. And I'm not going to go into the deep definitions. People can look this shit up, of course. Sure. <laughs> but um, what I have learned from people who practice either consensual non-monogamy or BDSM is that they tend to be very open and honest about their interests, what they like, what they don't like. They set very clear boundaries with each other. Um, like, to, for example, in BDSM, bondage, so you tie somebody up. That's what uh, I believe that's the B. That's the B. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm wrong, I'll make 50 comments, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but so for people who wish to tie each other up, in order to get tied up or to tie someone up, you have to have a whole conversation around what feels comfortable, how long you want to be tied up, how tightly you want to be tied up, what you get out of being tied up. So for example, some people like the idea of just being um, a little bit helpless, but with full understanding that at any point in time, they can get out of that space, right? Okay. So, um, like being able to communicate that, like, even like when people first explore BDF bondage, maybe it's, 
I'm getting tied up, but I want you to keep it loose enough that at any time I can remove my hands from that tie. So I feel a sense of safety. They have to have a whole conversation about that or uh, being able to say, I don't want to be tied up, but I'm okay with tying you up. Or I'm only okay with being tied up halfway, not the full way. Like maybe I'm okay with you tying my legs down, but I want my arms free because that feels more safe to me. So couples who are engaged in BDSM and consensual non-monogamy have regular conversation, very direct conversation about basically their yes, yeses, nos, and their maybes. And maybes mean it depends on the context. So if it's a no, if you have a good dominant partner, then they're deeply respecting all of your nos and they don't push you past your nose, but they have even deeper conversations around what makes a maybe a yes or a no. Because for example, like maybe somebody's willing to be tied up all the way once they've spent a few times getting tied up halfway um, with their partner and, re and really have built enough trust that they're like, okay, I know you're going to let me out. I know I'm going to be safe in this situation. You're going to deeply respect my boundaries. Um, so that's one of those maybes that can turn halfway being tied up to all the way being tied up. But they have such deep conversations and honest conversations about that. They can actually build trust with each other after each suggestion they they bring up with one another. So, so yeah, I think BDSM can be very healthy if well, done right. <laughs> I, I, so, so one of the things, the questions that I had as far as the BDSM goes, um, while I understand some aspects of it, so there's, there's the, sometimes the feeling of power sometimes the feeling of submissiveness. Mm -hmm. My question then becomes, um, how do we then evaluate someone that, that has to go to that level to enjoy another person? What do you mean by that, evaluate? Who's evaluating? So, so as a, as, so if you have this feeling that you have to be, you have to subject another person to restrictions in order to feel uh, pleasure, there's a possibility that, that you're not going to only limit it to your sexual partner, that in your everyday life, um, you're trying to find ways to subject other people to your domination in order for you to feel comfortable in society. Does that make, is that a better understanding or explanation? I hear what you're saying. I just think it's a big leap of logic. So okay. I have a different opinion. Okay. Um, a lot of people that I know that are engaged in BDSM are some of the most respectful people you'll meet in real life. They're very thoughtful of the impact they have on others. They even have conversations about power dynamics. For example, the people who are the dominance, uh, good dominance, by the way, I want to make very clear there are good dominance and bad dominance. And a good dominant person is somebody who deeply respects their submissive and every one of their boundaries or requests um, and is consciously doing things to make the submissive feel good. Like it is, it is for them, it is about 
like, so think of just a, a, any couple that is having sex. Sex is fun when both people are engaged, enjoying themselves, getting a lot out of the experience. And so for a dominant to get something out of it, their submissive needs to really like it, like really, really like it. And so at a very low level, most people actually have a level of dominance or submission in their sexuality, to be fair. So think about how you are as a sexual person. Do you tend to take the lead more? Then you're more of a dominant. Do you tend to like to follow along? Then you're more of a submissive. And everybody has a little bit of that. So if you're the one who grabs your partner and kisses her and maybe pushes her down on the bed, that your level of it is being more on the dominant side. Or if you're the kind of person that likes to be thrown against the wall or pushed down and it's like, oh, that feels good, then you're the submissive type. And that doesn't mean you can't go between the two because you absolutely can. Um, there are people who I would consider like hybrids and you can develop both sides of yourself, but everybody gets a little bit out of both of those things. These are things I call BDSM light or, you know, like basically diet BDSM, but everybody has a level of this to themselves. So no, there's not necessarily a situation where just because somebody likes to dominate in the bedroom that they're going to suddenly use that out in the world to dominate others. I'd say, um, Honestly, I don't know. I don't want to make I don't want to make a big leaping statement Generalism. myself about who's the person who dominates. But usually, I feel like people who are really insecure are the ones in the world who are trying to dominate and push others down. But like people who are very secure in their sexuality and who they are and what they want tend to be very respectful and understanding of people around them because they have a compassion for their own sexual interests and desires, and they've done the work to understand that they like these things or don't like thing, these things and why. If that makes sense. I understand. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. So my last question is, uh, one of the things that you had mentioned earlier, and I, I kind of forgotten, I'm going to circle back to it. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned earlier when we talked about um, arranged marriages versus marriages of choice was how the family um, uh, helped to make the marriage successful. So in a situation where um, when you're dealing with a couple, um, you, you can't necessarily include the family in that, um, in that session. How do you deal with uh, you know, the, the pressure that the family is putting on that relationship? Well, to be fair, I, I have brought in-laws in if, if it would help, because um, I've been trained to work with more than one person in the room, and that can include whole families. So I have done situations where um, a couple is talking to their in-laws, for example, or what, what's one person's parents and the other person's in-laws. In other cases, it's the in-laws are very toxic, so I'm teaching the couple how to set their own boundaries, how to create their own distance. But I will say that is one of the high predictors of um, divorce. So it still depends on how a couple handles that other family, those family members and how they come together. But like in-laws is actually a really common issue that comes into my office because if you have in-laws that are trying to, I mean, think of all the dynamics. So mm -hmm. there's the son, the prodigal son that's been taken away by this whore of a woman, right? You know, like, and I'm, I'm being very facetious here. I understand, here, but I understand. Yeah. Not a common one where it's like, how dare you take my son away from me? 
Um, and it, I see it the opposite way. This is our little girl. And we don't, you know, like it, it's often when the parents want a lot of control over that person. And then this other person feels like they're taking away that control because honestly, that's part of it, right? Is they're developing their independence with each other. But one parent seems to have their claws into that person and they're like, no, you're not allowed. And so I will definitely help couples come together to try and figure out how do I, how do we uh, work together as a team and separate from that? And going back to the arranged marriage side of things, since I work with couples of all cultures, that can be very challenging to figure out where the dynamic should be in couples in arranged marriages, or um, I'll say collectivist societies versus non-collective societies. So usually people in Western cultures are more individualistic and they believe that that belief, they have a belief that like once you get married, you're supposed, that's the primary unit and you guys are supposed to like leave and cleave to some degree um, or just you guys get to make decisions for yourself. That's in Western cultures, but in Eastern cultures, like in Chinese cultures, Indian cultures, even some Hispanic cultures, um, there is a very opposite approach, which is no, the family gets to decide. We even have a say in your marriage or what your job is going to be. And that's why actually when people from Asian cultures sometimes transfer here to America and they're raised in this individualistic society, there's some differences between, you know, it's like, well, I've learned that I, I can have like, I've been raised in this situation where I get to choose, but I still come from roots where that's not the case. And so a lot of what I have to do in those situations is have find, find out those cultural values and develop a respect for what it means to them, but how they're different or similar to those values. Because, you know, younger generations tend to change over time in all cultures. The younger generations kind of become new or different in some ways, or they'll take on some of the values, but let go of some of them. Um, but I have to just tread lightly there and then set boundaries that work with their value system. Okay, I'm gonna, we're gonna wrap things up here. I wanna thank you, Angela, very much for uh, joining us today. I'm gonna put up your books again, um, Helping Couples Overcome Infidelity and Premarital Counseling, A Guide for Clinicians. All right, thank you so much for having me. Oh, uh, it was truly a pleasure. I, I wish we had had more time. Maybe we can uh, entice you into coming back another time. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Angela. Thank you, Angela. That concludes this episode of Altitude Adjustment. And thank you for listening. This podcast is streamed live on YouTube and Twitch.tv and is designed for listener interaction. Visit the website, thelionsdenstl.wixsite.com forward slash home to join the discussion. The audio version of Altitude Adjustment is available where you get your podcasts, including Stitcher.com, the iTunes store, and the Google Play Music store, to name a few. Remember that the internet is powered by your likes, shares, and comments. So please like, share, and comment on this and other episodes of Altitude Adjustment because it matters. And as always, look out for the other guy because they may not be looking out for you.